Welcome to the Oil & Gas Elevate podcast. Each week, Sean McCoy and Eric Johnson share real-world case studies of businesses in oil and gas that are successfully navigating the complex environmental, social, and governance landscape. These are the stories that are driving the energy evolution. Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Welcome to the Oil and Gas Elevate podcast. This is your, one of your hosts, Sean McCoy. As always, here with Eric Johnson, my friend. How are you? I'm doing excellent. How about yourself? Not too bad today. We're going to talk about drilling fluid, oranges, the pandemic, hand sanitizer, homelessness, and mental health, and then creating a new product for your business. I'm excited to see how we pull all this together. Those are a lot of different points there, Sean. It was, and as this thing developed, as we're talking with Flowtech, and, and as, you, as you brought this story, as you were part of the first group, all these things that kept sticking out in my head is what an amazing combination of things we're putting together. Yeah, it is a great story, and we're going to do it a little different today. So we have joining us today, John Gibson, Chairman and CEO of Flowtech Industries. You also may remember him from his days at Tudor Pickering. And they're also blessed to have Hank Rush, President and CEO of the Star of Hope Mission. And we're going to do, like I said, a little bit different on the format. Usually we have a case study followed by an insight segment. But this story, I think, is so powerful, and I think it's best told in kind of an integrated fashion. So we're going to bring John and Hank together at the same time and kind of sit down and have this conversation around the points you just mentioned. So really excited about that. And one of the things I'm also excited about is that we finally get to tell a really great S story. We've told a lot of great E stories and a lot of great G stories. We've talked about the environment, we've talked about governments, but now we get to talk about social and seeing the oil and gas industry kind of plug in and help the community. So I'm excited about that. So let's take a quick commercial break, talk a little bit about HPE, our sponsor, and then dive right in. Hey, Sean, a quick note about our sponsor, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Through HPE's extensive activity and experience in the oil and gas industry, they have identified six key areas to enable your company to get ahead of the competition. Cloud-based consumption, advanced analytics, secure mobility solutions, physical and cybersecurity offerings, asset virtualization, and application modernization. So with that, do you want to find out more about one or all of those solutions? Go to www.hpe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT or click on the link in the show notes for more information and to download their white paper about these subjects. All right, you guys ready? Por que no? <laughs> yep, I'm ready to go. So, John, tell us a little bit about Flowtech. Who is Flowtech? What does Flowtech do? So we can kind of set the stage for this story a little bit. A great company. Really, the core of it is chemistry, but we do chemistry both for drilling fluids, completion fluids, for cementing additives. We also do real-time chemistry, so we, we have sensors that measure chemistry and tell you the composition of fluids while flowing every 15 seconds. So it's, it's a combination of chemistry for the oil and gas industry, which we've moved very strongly into green chemistry, and really working on biodegradability and the minimization of waste and the minimization of greenhouse gases, and then also the ability to understand the quality and the quantity of the chemicals or the crude or whatever chemical you might be moving, whether it be refined fuels or not. So a chemistry company that's everything from digital, doing the bits and bytes, to molecules. <laughs> and so, Hank, tell us a little bit about the mission and what Star of Hope does. Sure. Well, Star of Hope is a Christ-centered ministry dedicated to meeting the needs of homeless men, women, and children in our city. 
It's been serving 114 years now, founded way back in 1907 when Houston had 50,000 residents in it. Can you imagine? All downtown, kind of right along Buffalo Bayou and south of there and at Allen's Landing dock area. A lot of trade and commercial things going on there, and they started seeing homeless people on the streets at night. Dock workers would stay in the saloons too much at night and didn't have their families around. And so, and our little city decided, our little town decided we weren't going to have that happen in Houston. So several of the big churches, led by one in particular, put together a plan and opened a mission in one of the old saloons, ironically downtown, and opened the Star Pope Mission, July 1st, 1907. So that's what we do. We've been doing it ever since, and it's one of the largest in the country. We serve four to 5,000 homeless people a year, men, women, and children, who come to us with nowhere else to go. So it's quite a, quite a place, quite a ministry, and a really exciting place to be part of. So. Amen. So John, Sean and I are excited about this story, kind of set the stage for us. Spring of 2020, the pandemic's taking off. What happens? I'd been CEO here at Flowtech for probably uh, 90 days at the time. So we're in March. I was visiting customers in Canada and it's clear they're about to close the border. And so I'm making a scurry to the airport so that I can get out instead of being a permanent resident of uh, Alberta. And when I get to the airport, the COVID anxiety was building and people were looking for hand sanitizer and they were looking for disinfectants and they were trying to figure out how to protect themselves. And it was really early on. I mean, you, you didn't really know what was going to happen or how devastating it'd be to business or anything, but I, I did know we were already slowing down in oil and gas. And so I made a telephone call to our president of chemistry, Dr. Ryan Azell, and I said, Ryan, I think we're going to be out of sanitizer. looks like the FDA's loosened the requirements on it in the near term to, for crisis. I said, do you think we could make any? And this guy's such a soldier, he said, I'll look into that, sir. And I said, okay, I'll talk to you tomorrow. So I left, came back. I got out of Canada. It's uh, got back to Houston. And next morning I came in later in the afternoon. I said, Ryan, how do we do? He said, well, we made 12,500 gallons. I was like, whoa, I, I was thinking more in terms of like, you know, 10 or 12, eight ounces. I didn't, I really didn't have any idea, but we, Flotech is a great chemistry company. We do things in volume. We can do about 3 million gallons a month, no matter what type of chemicals that we're doing. So, you know, we had the 12,500 gallons and it had no place for it to go. So your next problem is what do I do? with 12,500 gallons of sanitizer, which I didn't really intend to make that much. And so the first thing that came to mind is who would be the people most likely to need it and that others wouldn't think about. And so you go, well, it's probably the homeless people in Houston. And so I made a call to Mike Bohorich, who I've known for many years, and he's on the board of the Star Hope Mission, which I knew. And I said, Mike, do you think they would need any hand sanitizer and he asked me what I'd be charging I said we'd be giving that and you know and so he said let me give Hank a call I'll call you right back so he did and called me back and we talked about how much and it started out at a really small amount and then it sort of got up to a thousand gallons and you go so how would we get that I said well we'll deliver it to you so we did that now that grew into the phone ringing and we talked to the city of Houston, and so Mayor Turner and I actually interrupted the Ellen DeGeneres show to announce that we donated 1,240 gallons to the first responders in Houston at a time when they didn't have availability to it as well. We took care of several hospitals, several retirement centers, and then expanded it to Midland. And i tell that story later, but it really takes a network of people that care 
and that want to do something in the community to make things happen. And, and it's, it's not about me. We were talking about that earlier. It's about the fact you can make a telephone call to somebody you know has a heart for others, and they're going to reach out to others. And it's, it's our working together that I think what makes this industry great is our commitment to the social aspects and to our employees, to the communities, even though we all have to deal with the difficult parts of downturns and layoffs. At the core, we care about the people, we care about the environment, and what a great network. So we reached out to Hank and sent him over, I, th- I think, around 1,000 gallons. 1,000 gallons, yeah. 1,000, 205-gallon jugs of it that came in with four pallets of sanitizer and that was at a time when the pandemic had just started and and uh, we couldn't get any ppes any protective equipment any you know masks or or sanitizers or all the things that we were needing and so this was a real godsend for us a big help huge help we serve a lot of people in what are called now the term congregate facilities that everybody knows that term but we have bunk beds for the men and large rooms and three, four hundred men with us a night, sometimes a hundred more on the floor at night if it's really bad weather. And so so we're just kind of the last place of last choice and, and last respite for them on coming off the streets in certain situations. And so the pandemic's going on and we had all the it was full facility already downtown for men with three fifty there that night and typical nights that, that time of the year. And our family campus is set up a little differently with more individual rooms, but we have the same large groups and large congregations of people getting together in dining halls and all that kind of thing. So, And we couldn't just send them home because they don't have a home. They didn't have where to go, so we're their home. This was really a very critical time for us, very helpful service, and we used it very rapidly. We couldn't get face masks at that time either. I mean, we're trying to find those all over the country. We ordered 5,000 of them from China, I think, at one point, just said, we're just going to buy some masks. And that, at that point, you could still get them. You know, the wave hadn't really hit yet. And I'm sure glad we did that. So with these two two pieces in place, we were able to really move forward and protect our folks. So, Hank, if you wouldn't mind expanding on that just a tad. So uh, in the business world, you know, we can, we can adapt, we can do things, we can, you know, change our kind of operating conditions so to some degree in terms of helping bring in revenue in. We can donate, things of that nature. But for a nonprofit in terms of operations, you're a lot on the edge of waiting for somebody else to help you come along. And that, that connection is super, super important. My wife's done development at Texas Children's for 30 years. So I've, I've seen this happen. Can you help people understand what it means when a company reaches out, when a person like John sees that need and how valuable that is to an organization in general? You know, that's one of the most amazing things about being at Star Pope. I've been there 13 years now and it just never ceases to amaze me how God brings. We're, we're a ministry, so we believe that God's at the heart of all of it, and he's certainly the reason that we're there is to help them find a new life and a new faith and get their lives back on track and, and not just move along in life with this handout or that handout, but really put things back together and, and get back on track with a purpose, purpose-built life. So it's so neat to see how God brings resources and people together and inspires folks like John to call and offer something, and it happens a lot. And it's really the fabric of a lot of what we do. It's just piecing together all the things that we need and all the things the community has to give. And we take very little government money. So all of our giving for Star of Hope is, is privately funded. I mean, people like you and me give money to it. Churches give money to it, corporations, foundations, but lots and lots, thousands and thousands of just everyday folks send gifts in, send $20 a month or send in a Christmas gift or come to an event or whatever. So... And somehow it all works together and it all comes in when we need it. And so this is one of those times when we really had a lot of needs. And John just stepped right up there and, and helped make it happen. So 
Let's talk a little bit about that. You know, the charities and other organizations I'm involved in, they've, they've pretty consistently said during the pandemic that from a contribution standpoint, whether it's in kind or whether it's cash, that that has been a struggle. And just where, where has Star of Hope been in that process? I know John and, and Flowtech, that's been a huge blessing to you guys. But just talk about the arc of of contributions and giving over the time of the pandemic and kind of where you guys stand and how that's worked out for you. It's actually worked out just fine for us. We have a large donor base who give sometimes, some of the times, a lot of times, others, some give annually, some give once every two or three years, some give every month, some give more often than that. So, but when this crisis hit, people really kind of woke up and were alerted to the needs. And they immediately, I think nationwide, people thought about the homeless. In fact, for a while there, the government was saying that the homeless population was probably the hardest hit. Didn't really quite turn out that way, but but that's what was kind of going on in those early months when this was all happening last April. And so people responded very well, and, and we had good donations sources coming in, sustained us just fine last year, and we were able to keep all of our staff, take care of all of them. We had all the issues with our own personal staff, like a hospital does. We're kind of like immediate care workers. So we all continued to work. We were there every day doing what we needed to do, and we had folks in hazmat suits working with our residents when we've had, had little outbreaks and things happening. So it was really quite a, quite a system put in place there and we're the largest in the city and so a lot of challenges were faced by us first because of our size and the county dr david purse who's the head county health official and the mayor's office other organizations around the city county and city worked together with us and we kind of ended up kind of designing the standards for how other organizations would deal with similar kinds of things in those months to come so that all played out really well for us and got on down the road and have had a real successful year since then John, I want to touch on something that when as we prepared for this, that really kind of it resonated with me personally, outside of just the, the goodness of all of this, was listening to you speak about what made you want to do this. Now, outside of just having the resources and outside of just, you know, wanting to do a good thing, which is always nice. Uh, we talked on one of our calls about mental health and we talked about in addition to just being homeless, but, but why is that happening? And you you made some statements that really made me kind of take a step back and go, Wow, because because you mentioned that it wasn't you could be there. That this is, it's a very thin line. That because we we tend to, I think when we're successful, we talk about this a lot. You know, between the military and corporate America and just the way that we act. You know, we tend to in our type A, all the way that we do business. It's like there's not a lot of room for weakness. There's not a lot of room for you know some sort of you know if you're having a tough day, you just need to you know suck it up, Buttercup, and let's let's get on with it. And there's a time for that. But I just felt that you had a little bit more wisdom in that area, a little bit more insight. And I was just curious if you wouldn't mind kind of talking about what was motivating you and how you how you approached that and maybe why that was such an important thing to you. It is a very important thing to me. It's almost emotional thing, so I'll try to stay straight here. But I would tell you, but for the grace of God, I'm living under a bridge. I mean, dysfunctionality can happen to anybody. And I would also tell you that the higher your IQ, the more likely you are to become dysfunctional. So you've got some really smart and intelligent homeless people that just find themselves unable to actually cope in the world that, that we've created. And so it's, it's not about IQ when you're homeless. It's about opportunity and circumstances. And any one of us can find ourselves in that shape. And I'm acutely aware of that. I've not had to live in a car yet, but you know that can happen, right? I've seen businesses where you can't fix the problems, you're struggling, you put all you have into them, and it doesn't always work out. And so you have to realize at any moment you might need help. And so I'm just really aware of how important help is when you're at the bottom. And so what, how do you, you really help 
those people that, that need it, realizing it could be you. In my own family, I have a brother that took his life, and you know, I wish we could have helped him more, right? And so you can take a look at uh, mental illness and, and ask you know, what could have been done there and, and what could have happened there. So it, it becomes a really personal thing. And I don't think there's anyone that if you truly ask them and we destigmatize mental illness would not say that they have challenges within their own family or their extended family or friends because it's just prevalent in society today. And we, we avoid talking about it just because it in some way tarnishes our image in our own mind when what it really does is keeps us from addressing the problem. And I would say, and I've seen this in my own children, right, as, as we've gone through the lockdown and seeing them struggle with the lack of personal interaction and some of those restrictions and how that is mentally stressful to them. And, and I know that's happening across employee bases. I know it's happening in the Star of Hope Mission. You know, I know it's happening everywhere. Hank, when you get your just thoughts on what you've seen from, you know, what is the lockdown, kind of that lockdown environment? What has it done to people? And are you seeing any of that in Star of Hope? Have you seen an, an increase in kind of Star of Hope issues related to those kind of problems from a population base that wouldn't have historically been part of Star of Hope now, but they may find themselves there now? You know, everybody's affected differently and everybody embraces it differently. And we've had of our staff, you know, some people have elderly adults are taken care of. They have situations with people in their family, family members have mental health or have regular health conditions who could not be exposed to it. And so we have people who are fearful of coming to work and had all the same things that corporations had, people that, you know, didn't worry about it at all. You know, everybody reacted to full spectrum of reactions to the whole thing. So there's a real emotional side to it that we all dealt with as individuals. And then as we look at our workplace, all of us had to decide how we were going to function in our workplace. And so we we were very flexible with that. We had to stay open because we're essential workers. So we kept our essential workers on on site. But people would have problems. We had a lot of ways to accommodate for that and help them have time off to work with their family members or deal with an elderly parent or somebody who got COVID and got sick. We had to quarantine, went through all those processes. There were many processes we put in place for our clients, for our residents who were coming and staying with Star of Hope, who were homeless, to protect them and to protect our staff who was working with them, just like a hospital working with somebody in the hospital. So it was quite an elaborate set of things to figure out, and it was daily and, you know, weekly, daily, weekly, monthly things were, were actively changing. And so we just evolved with it and worked through it to the point where we all are today, which is almost out of the, the problem. And certainly Starbucks done fine through all that, and we've kept our facilities open the whole time. I don't think and we don't have anything documented in any of our board minutes from 100 years back that Starbucks was ever closed its doors. We may have had to close a facility because it got damaged in a storm or something, but we've always moved the clients and kept our staff with them. We've never just abandoned our clients because they're they're homeless people and they have nowhere else to go. And so that's a real special thing about this place. And, and our whole team just surrounds that and embraces that, passionate about it. And so team member had to be out for themselves or their family members. And we we filled in the slack, took care of it, and, and it just all worked out very well and very gracefully by the grace of God. And we're very thankful for our amazing staff that work at Star of Hope. So I think to that to your staff and a little bit in, in terms of what John was saying, what's, I don't want to give like a guide or, or kind of a, a three-step process, but in your experience, what have you seen that allows people that courage to step into this and say, I need help? 
and maybe especially people that are maybe don't typically ask for it or kind of like, what have you learned about? Because it, it feels like, I remember years ago, there's a book by John Eldridge, you may be familiar with Wallet at Heart, and he talks about there's this painting and it's, it's called My Bunking. It's these two late 1800s U.S. Army soldiers. And the, there's one guy, he's riding a horse and he's saving his friend and he's and it's his bunkmate and he's and he's saving him and it's wonderful and i remember what looking at that picture and i think like all of us we look at it and go i would save my friend but what we never think about is a little bit to your point john is what about the guy who's being saved like the guy who needs help nobody wants to be the guy who needs their their you know pulled out of the fire or the needs their, you know in that situation is kind of acute but in life very seldom we want to be that person that stands up and goes, hey, I'm struggling. But we see such amazing things happen in that area and the potential for things that can happen in that area. So can you talk a little about what people do and how maybe how you've seen in this in, in terms of Star Hope, what, what's some of the undercurrents that helps us, I guess, walk through that with people and even be a part of it maybe? Gosh, that's a great question. Star Hope is a, we're a public employer. We hire people all the time and to come work with us. We have 230 or 40 employees working with us. And so they come from all walks of life. They all, we all ask them, why did you come to Star of Hope? What led you here? What inspired you to come here? Many of them, it's a spiritual thing. Most of them are strong Christians. And, and for some reason or another, God put it on their hearts or some situation happened or some circumstance happened that brought them there. Some of them have felt called a ministry in their past somewhere along the way. Some of them are professional ministry people. Some of them are, but they're everything else. We're all different kinds of services. We have facilities people we have cooks we have have classroom teachers we have children's workers we have counselors and case workers we have people specially trained in mental health and other needs of homeless people and, and very acute to the needs there and we hire very professional staff to do all that but we have a whole group of different kinds of people working with us and so we just all come to it with different different goals and different aims and we're not there very long you're not it starts up very long until you're just in fact, the first day, I mean, I can tell you stories from the first day I got there. You're just constantly amazed at what God does in the heart of life. God can change a life. He can change a heart and a life if you just are available to it and you're just willing. And we all get to those points in life. We've all had our rock bottoms. We've all had our sky highs. For some people, they just end up with way too many rock bottoms and way too many seasons of their life where they're not able to function at all. And in some ways, you, you remember when they used to, when homeless people would push the, the buggies around with and collect glass bottles, and then later on it was cans, and they would go collect them and go sell them. Especially for homeless men, I almost think it's like they failed at so many things in life. They can't function in a job. They've had addiction problems, or they've, they've, they've got a record and criminal record, and they can't get employed well, and so they just get so defeated. They finally just were doing something that they could manage and control and create a life of their own. And so but I think that's part of what street life is. They can't cope with all the rest of it. They just end up trying to build some sort of semblance of a society and a life and put some tents up and get to know the people around them. And, you know, it's just how we all cope, but they're just on a whole different level of it. So, but they come to rock bottom. They come to a point where they need Starve Hope. Nobody ever comes to Starve Hope if they have anywhere else to go. So we're kind of like that place that, that they've heard about and that they Somebody tells them about or a van drives up, one of our van drivers, our Love and Action vans. We have three of them who run around the downtown area and around the city and just work with folks and help them and bring them things and talk to them, pray with them. And eventually they'll say, I want to go in, or they'll come on in on their own. And so, and other times they're brought by family members or a church will call up and have somebody that came to worship one Sunday morning and has nowhere to stay and doesn't know what to do. And so, I mean, they come from all over the place. So, 
it's an amazing place to be, and, and we're all moved very quickly after we get there. It doesn't take long after you start working there, whatever your job is, to, to, be encounter, to be in an encounter situation with someone who's homeless and seeing the needs and learning how to reach those. And they're just something in all of our hearts that's compelling, that compels us to help them. You know, and so that's what Starbucks is about. And volunteers that come to us and work with us do the same thing when they come and volunteer. So obviously, as an industry, we need to support amazing organizations like Star of Hope, other organizations that are plugged into the community, you know, helping from the bottom to the top, whatever we need. And John, I know you don't like to toot your own horn, and I know you don't want to talk about kind of your leadership and your push in this area, but I do want to pat you on your back for a little bit. And But Sean said it earlier, your wisdom. So I'd like you to share a little bit more of your wisdom that we can share with our listeners. Maybe there's some other, you know, management and executive teams out there that are thinking about you know, how can I take my company and can I plug in? And obviously you guys had a very special skill set. I mean, there's not a lot of people that can make orange disinfectant, right? But <laughs> <laughs> we are biodegradable using terpenes. So. But I, I think there were lessons learned as you plugged in in early 2020 on this and you started to reach out to your network. How can we deliver this stuff? How can we make it? What do we do? So words of encouragement, words of wisdom to other senior leaders out there that are thinking about ways to plug in in Houston and the oil and gas industry. I'm just thinking about what Hank said in the question just before. And I, I would tell you, that I've not been, and I teach all the time. I was teaching at Rice to their global leadership forum just a week or so ago. And no matter when I speak to university students or young executives, I'll say, if you really want to be successful in life, you're going to get to a point where you don't know everything that you need to know to do your job. And as a consequence, the only way you succeed is to ask for help. And so the very question you ask is, if you want to be successful, if you want to recover, if you want to come out of addiction, the real skill you have to master is to ask for help. And so I know that I, I was rejected when I applied to college. I was coming out of the Army, and I asked a Captain Tillette, an African-American, to write a letter for me to the university to get me accepted, and he did, and I got accepted. And so I'll always owe a great gratitude to a man I haven't spoken to since then for getting me into college through his endorsement for how I had changed. Because if you'd have known me before I was in the Army, you probably wouldn't have wanted me in your college either. <laughs> but uh, so then, uh, but then I, I came to a point where I didn't know how to do something with regard to software. And the board was forcing me to move the company from one operating system to another. I'm a geologist. I'm not a computer scientist. So I made a call to a Jim Medlock, who was the CEO of Intergraph in Huntsville, Alabama, and he had moved his company from this operating system to the one that we wanted to go to, and his company value had gone from $7 billion to a $1 billion. And I cold called Mr. Medlock, and I said, Mr. Medlock, my name's John Gibson, and I've been asked to do this, and the board members are sort of pushing me in this direction. And I see what happened to your company when you did it is, could you give me any advice? And he said, boy, if you were in Huntsville tomorrow, I'd explain to you what I did wrong. And I said, I said what time tomorrow? <laughs> so I managed to get from Houston to Huntsville, Alabama, and he spent the day with me. And he schooled me on, on everything, and everything he said we would be doing wrong, we were doing wrong. We were asking customers the wrong questions. Do you want it on this platform? Do you want something that's less expensive? He, he said, ask this question. How long will it take for you to change out your infrastructure? And that we weren't asking that question. Well, it turns out to be seven years. So what his problem was, he had a great product, and it was going to be seven years before the infrastructure existed to support it. So we were, and it's so simple when I tell you. But it's, and that's the way help works, though. It's really not all that hard 
when you finally ask and someone that is, understands that give, gives you the advice. And I, I looked at him and I went, I would have made every one of these mistakes. He saved our company by taking a day off and wanting to help, right, and saying, I can prevent you from making the mistake I made. And so the, the whole of my life's that. I'm just I'm trying now at, at this point in my career to say, I'll save you making any mistake that I've made if you'll call and ask me for help. I can tell you what I did wrong, tell you what I did right. I can tell you that what you need to think about. And I've asked for help so many times that I can talk for an hour about the fact if it weren't for others, I wouldn't be here in this position today. And, and I would be in a much more you know, desperate circumstances. Even in this situation, I didn't really, we're not a large company and we're struggling a bit financially at Flowtech and we have the right mission and vision. I've got great people, but I really didn't need to spend that much money on product to, to donate to people. And so I called Tudor Pickering and Holt, Maynard Holt from where I came to come here, said, could you help offset the cost of some of the, the raw materials? And he said, send you a check. So he sent me a check. I called Stephen Jumper, who's the CEO of Dawson Geophysical in Midland, and I was asking him for money. I'll, I won't, I'll, I'll be unashamed. <laughs> I'm just going to see if I can offset a little more of that cost. I called Stephen, and I said, and he said, I can't really donate to that. They also had some cash issues. I said, well, do you know the mayor of Midland, and could you guys use any sanitizer because I've got quite a lot of it? And he said, I'll call you right back. It turns out that uh, Mayor Midland was Steve Jumper's pastor. And so before he mm -hmm. became the mayor of Midland, so he called the mayor of Midland. They came back and said how much they needed for hospitals, first responders in Midland. And I said, well, I don't know how I can get that much to you because after you get past about 1,100 pounds, which is about 200 gallons or so, you have to have qualified drivers and hazmat and other things. And, and he said, now, you know who you're talking to, right? You're talking to Steve Jumper. I mean, we haul explosives all the time, John. That's what the geophysical industry is all about. He said, where do you want those trucks? I'll deliver it wherever it needs to go. Hmm. And so trucks from Midland went to Oklahoma and picked up the product, delivered it to Houston, delivered it to Star Hope, and delivered it to Midland because there are a large number of people that care, and you just have to ask for help. And so I would say one of the biggest things I think will make a difference in the social aspect of ESG is the more that we, we hit the telephone and email and just say, could you help me on this? Because I think people truly do care. And when they're able and when they have the, the resources available to them, where it be in our case a scarce resource at the time, isopropyl alcohol, that we can do something with that product that makes a difference where money can't change that. You know, money, sometimes when there's no food available, having money doesn't do you any good. When there's no isopropyl alcohol available, having money doesn't do you any good. We had, we had those raw materials, and so we were, were able to do some good. But friends like Maynard Holt and Stephen Jumper in our industry really came together to make what happened possible. So, John, I think it's a require. I hear in my in my head. I hear all the CFOs. Not to pick on CFOs, but I hear all the finance people. I know all my friends that when I get into these conversations are like, "Yeah, that's all great, but you know, profitability and in, in the business and income and all these things matter." And so, I want to talk a little bit about. It seems like a little bit of an odd segue, but I think just to kind of help round out all this stuff, there is still an opportunity to bring a business element into this. And I, and I believe y'all have, have pivoted and created a product line. Now, whether it's going to you know set the world on fire or not, but it, it's, an, it, it's still a chance to take this lesson and bring it in-house. And could you talk about that a little bit or the potential for that? Well, I mentioned it earlier in an answer. I mean, we did this just as a trial to give away. 
and the phone started ringing. And the phone kept ringing after we'd given everything away. And people needed it. And it was commercial needs, not philanthropic needs. And you go, well, I believe I can sell you that, right? So what would you put? What's the price for that? And you go, well, that's pretty good margin. <laughs> and so you start out with a virtuous attempt to do something, and it converts into a business. And so I would tell you we have a, a virtue-based business that would be in the Jansen or pro-chemistry lines where we began to meet those needs. And we had calls from hospitals throughout the U.S., from major IT firms. And our products are in a lot of places. We sold millions of dollars worth of product after giving away the amount that we did, right? And so you go, wow, for $100,000 in donations, we, we began to get millions of dollars in, in sales. And we really continued to use Virtue as the platform for that, right? We wanted a lot of people, kind of an odd conversation, but in the early days, even even as late as September, October, you could order and not get delivery. There are people still waiting on delivery of products because the resources were unreliable and the shysters showed up in the sector so that you could buy the disinfectants and the chemicals you needed and they'd never arrive. Right? So we put cameras in and monitors so that if when you bought inventory, you could see your inventory being produced, bottled, and shipped, right? So that you could have confidence in our ability. We felt like integrity in all of this was really important. So we integrated that in and went, we'll just keep the virtue in the, in the product line. And so it's become a, a really good product line. We And it is biodegradable. We really do focus on using terpenes, which is it's kind of funny that comes from both orange peel, citrus fruits, as well as from, you know, pine terpenes. And it's exciting to see the growth in that product line and, and, and how that is being adopted and the need for a new entry. Because that, another thing that occurred from a business perspective was what happened during that crisis, it's really cool to see how business reacts. And so when you've got more orders than you can fill, which happened to all the large players, I won't name them, they decided who was important and who wasn't. And so they allocated small amounts to their non-strategic customers or none, and they took care of a few customers. That's created a new market for us people that aren't happy with their supplier. <laughs> and so you go, it, is, it really is a business opportunity because people burn bridges because they don't think through the consequences of not being egalitarian or allocating in a way that is fair. They do it based all entirely upon profitability. So so CFOs. And you find when you come out of that, if you take care of the most that you can in an honest and fair way, you have a much better long-term business and you might miss a quarter, but you're going to, you're going to make a decade. And so I really like how we now have people calling us and saying, you know, I don't trust these guys. And if you guys can show us inventory and you can give us reliability, there's a great opportunity for us to become a, a real player in this sector. Yeah. And I don't mean to pick on the CFOs at all, but it's, it's, there's a lesson in there somewhere. There's a lesson in there somewhere. I'm used to you picking on lawyers. Uh, <laughs> <but>. <laughs> so there's a CFO's turn. Yeah, well, John, I do want to commend you to step out in faith and with a good heart to do something that with no intended return. And what I've found out in my life personally, and I, and I think it can happen in the corporate world too, is when you do that, God turns those blessings back to you tenfold, hundredfold. And that's what's happened in, in this particular environment. So I know you are full of humility mm -hmm. and that's always what I've been exposed to. 
but I do want to commend you for that effort. And, and it has, and it has paid off in many respects, which is not just a selfish bottom line thing. I mean, mm-hmm. your employees benefit, benefit from that, right? I mean, th- those blessings spread out. So I think that's an awesome thing. And I do want to commend you for that. And, and that's why we were so, Sean and I were so excited to do this episode and sit down with you and Hank. Oh, you're very kind. And I, I don't want to take a lot of credit because I, I would tell you, I can't do otherwise, which is kind of an odd thing to say. It's, it's after you start your life trying to do what you should be doing, it's really hard to not do that, right? So when you see a need, it's your overwhelming desire if you can to meet it. And so it's one of those things where I, I can't walk away from opportunities where it's clear I have the resources or it's clear I have the capabilities or the connections to make a difference. And so, and I wish everybody were that way, right? I mean, you just go, I don't have a choice. It's not like I can say no to things. Sometimes I just go, if I can do that, I will. Can't do everything. So no is important. You don't often have the resources, the connections or others. But when you do, I think you have an obligation. Business, it's really important. ESG is really, I'm going to change it completely and just say what it's trying to do is make companies focus on the long term and not just quarter to quarter. And we've gotten into the quarter to quarter rat race in America and we have to stop that. And if you want to look at a great business, it has to, to create an environment where workers are created and educated, where the community's successful, where the medical services are available to your employees. You need the totality of an environment or a, a, a community for a business to be successful. And we get so focused on profitability, we, we lose sight of the fact that we're in the long-term business of creating wealth and creating a quality of life for the, the people that we serve. Yeah, for those next 114 years for Star of Hope. So this goes by really quick, way too quick. We definitely appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I mean, John, Hank, we wish nothing but the best for your organizations, for your for your business. Do believe that, that you know, just you make us proud to be a part of the industry. It's so wonderful to tell this story and put it out there with all the other stuff going on in the oil and gas industry. So thank you. Thank yeah, you. Thanks to both of y'all. Thank you so much. Enjoyed being here. Enjoyed it. All right. And with that, we'll see y'all next week. Hey, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the events on deck for July 2021. This month, we have five events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're always interested in staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. This month, OGGN will be hosting our monthly happy hour at the Cannon in Houston, Texas on July 29th. Our June happy hour was a hit, so if you weren't there for the June one, we hope to see you there this month at our July happy hour. At this event, you'll be able to meet some of OGGN's hosts and network with other oil and gas industry professionals, all while enjoying great food and drinks. Don't forget that it's on July 29th. Other than OGGN's events, we have two in-person and two online events. First up, we have our two in-person events. The first one being the Doug Permian and Eagle Ford Conference at the Fort Worth Convention Center from July 12th to July 14th. And the next in-person event is the SPE International Data Science Convention at the Norris Convention Center in Houston, Texas on July 8th. Next, we have our two online events. The first being a Cognite webinar titled, From Buzzwords to Boardrooms, What Energy Leaders Really Think About the Transition Towards True Sustainability. And that's on July 8th from 11.30 to 12.30. And lastly, we have the US-Africa Energy Forum, which is online on July 12th. If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for July. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in. On behalf of the Elevate podcast team, thank you so much for clicking play and bringing to life these amazing stories. We hope this elevated your perspective and serves you well as you navigate understanding ESG and the energy evolution. 
We are so grateful for your time and kindly ask that you rate and review the show on Apple iTunes, which is a great way to help us grow. The best way to support the work we are doing is to tell a friend about it, ask them to listen, and share with others what you've learned from listening to our guests. Lastly, we want to invite you to reach out to us for any comments, suggestions, or just to connect. You can do that through my email, sean.mccoy at oggn.com. I'd love to hear from you and what you think of our podcast. Be safe, and we look forward to bringing you another episode next week. Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power, here to innovate. innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power, here to innovate. Ha!